Uh, it is a wonderful privilege to be able to stand before you delivering God's word. And uh, it's an, ex an, ex an excitement to see all of you here. I want you to turn with me to John 15, verse 1 to 11. That's where we'll find our passage. And as, as we consider this passage, I, I, I want us to, to answer the question, how can I know that I am a true Christian? This is an important question. It is a question that every man should concern himself with. A man who is to get where he is going will do well to ask himself if he is in the right path. And so shall the Christian. If he is to go to heaven, he must ask himself, am I on the narrow way? There are many teachings nowadays, some good and some false. There are those claims that there are many ways to heaven that Jesus is not the only way. Some claim that God, good works are the way to heaven. They say it isn't too much about your religion. You know, It isn't too much about the religion you follow. It isn't too much about whether you're a Christian or a Muslim. It's about, it's about how many good works you can do, you see. They claim that good, way, good works are the way to heaven. It isn't too much about uh, how you relate to God. If you only do good works that outweigh your sins, you are well on your way to heaven. Some claim you only need to perform some spiritual ritual for you to connect with God and be saved. Some claim Christianity isn't too complicated, they say. It's only a matter of having a relationship. If you have a relationship with Jesus, it shouldn't matter how you live your life. After all, Jesus only looks at the heart. You see, if your attitude to Christ is not hostile, like that of the atheist, you shouldn't worry yourself too much, they say. Jesus is all about love. But as we have come to learn, many who hold these positions are some of the most unhappy people on earth. Uh, their faith brings them no comfort when they are faced with trials. Their lives are contradictory to what they profess. They often don't read the Bible and often defend, often can't defend what they believe because they have believed in nothing. You see, they have believed in a God of their own making. They have believed in a figment of their imagination. And this is really a, a terrible place to be. Better is a man who is lost than a man who is on the wrong path and has convinced himself that he is on the right path. It is the same in the Christian way. Better is a sinner who knows himself to be lost than a sinner with a false sense of security. You see, it is better to convince a man who knows he is wrong than a man who thinks he is right. In our passage today, we shall seek to answer the question, how do I know that I am a true Christian? How do I know that I'm not just deceiving myself, 
How do I know that I'm on the right path? And in doing so, we go to our text, John 15, verse 1 to 11. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you, and abide in me, and I in you. As the branch that cannot, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. But this, my Father, is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We are here in what is known as the farewell discourse. Jesus is saying his last words to prepare his disciples for a world without him. It is Thursday night, celebrating the Passover with his disciples the night before he's crucified. And it is important to notice that as Jesus is saying these things to his disciples, there is one who is missing. Judas has been exposed as one who is going to betray Jesus. And at this moment, he has left to devise his plan of getting Jesus arrested. And so Jesus is left with the 11 disciples. In this passage, Jesus uses a metaphor to prepare his disciples for a world that is about to hate them, a world that is about to persecute them. He wants them to have a solid foundation of what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. In this metaphor, we see the foundations of Christianity. This is Christianity 101. In this passage, there is simply the vine, the vine dresser, and two branches. And we're going to see how Jesus uses this metaphor to answer the question, how do I know I'm a true Christian? And in doing that, we turn first to our first point. We need to understand the nature of Jesus Christ. Verse 1. Jesus Christ said, I am the true vine. There, I am the true vine. The nature of Jesus Christ. The name I am is one of the ways Jesus uses to introduce himself. You will do well to remember in Exodus 3 when Moses was in the wilderness, 
speaking to the burning bush, he, 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 he asked God, what should I say your name is? And God replied, my name is I am, that I am. My name is the self-sufficient one, the one who exists within himself, the one who is uncaused, uncreated, the one who exists from eternity to eternity, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And therefore it is clear here what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is telling his disciples is that he claims to be divine. Jesus is making a proclamation of divinity. He is simply saying to his disciples, he is equal with God. He is the I am. There are some of the instances that Jesus uses this name in John. We, we learn that Jesus is the only source of all that sustains life and vitality. He says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the living bread that came from heaven. Jesus only is the source of all life-giving knowledge. I'm the light of the world. Jesus only provides access and guidance to heaven. He says, I'm the door. I'm the shepherd. Jesus is the ultimate source of life. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In John 8, 50, in John 8, 58 and 59, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You see, brothers, it might be difficult for us to get this doctrine. It might be difficult for us to understand this doctrine of Jesus' divinity. But the Jews knew very well what he was saying. You see, that's why they picked up stones. That's why there was an uproar. They wanted to stone him. Because they knew he was claiming to be God. And they knew in their theology that that is blasphemy. That's the whole reason they killed Jesus. It's not because he has committed any sin, but because he claimed to be equal with God. In John 10, 30-33, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, No, no, no. It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. You see, the Jews understood what Jesus was claiming. The Jews understood that Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. He's claiming to be God himself. And, 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 and contrary to popular belief that Jesus never claimed to be God in the Bible, we see throughout his ministry, time after time, claiming that he is equal with God, that he is sent from God, that he is the Son of God. And this is the very brothers and sisters. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, you cannot be a Christian. 
You cannot be a Christian because you have believed in a Jesus of your own making. The Jesus who saves is the Jesus of the Bible, who is the true man and the true God, fully man and fully God, the God-man, God incarnate, God made flesh. Without this theology in your heart, you cannot be a Christian. John 8:24, Jesus says of himself, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, you will go to hell. And, and trying to make sense of how Jesus could truly be man in every sense of the word, and yet at the same time truly be God in the, every sense of the word, is futile. It's futile trying to understand that. Here we simply have to concede that God's ways are higher than our ways. That God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. You see, brothers and sisters, faith sometimes requires that we believe things that are beyond our understanding. A man might not understand that water is made of two molecules of hydrogen and one molecule of oxygen. He might not understand how that same water can exist as solid, liquid and gas. But this he knows, that this very same water is good to quench thirst and maintain the vitality of his body. And this is enough for him. He, he doesn't say, until I know that this, what this water was made of, I won't drink it. No, he doesn't say that. He simply believes that water is good for him and he drinks. So it is brothers with faith. We simply must believe even when it is difficult to understand. Again, we see that Jesus is not only the vine, but the true vine. You see, in the Old Testament, there are many texts that talk about Israel being the vine of God. In Jeremiah 2, verse 21, God says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? You see, Israel was chosen by God to be his choice vine. Israel was chosen to shine, to be the people of God, the nation of God. But what, they, what have they done? They have turned degenerate. They have become wild. They have become unrecognizable. They become a, a vine that doesn't produce fruit, fruit. And so Jesus comes as the long-awaited Messiah, the vine who will come and produce fruits. Jesus comes as a replacement of Israel. Jesus comes to fulfill what Israel couldn't fulfill. Brothers and sisters, it is important to know that what you believe about Jesus Christ determines whether you're a Christian or not. Our second point, we tend to force Christians. Verse 2, Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. We learn that there is a vine and there are two types of branches. There are branches that produce fruit and there are branches that don't produce fruit. And they are both said to be connected to the vine. 
Notice how Jesus talks about those branches. He says, in me, every branch in me. Though it is clear to understand that the branches that produce fruit are the disciples of Jesus Christ, it is not as obvious to determine whether the branches that are unfruitful are disciples or not. It is here that we need to hear the words of J.C. Ryle. He says, these verses, we must carefully remember, contain a parable. In interpreting it, we must not forget the great rule which applies to all Christ's parables. The general lesson of each parable is the main thing to be noticed. The minor details must not be tortured and pressed to an excess in order to extract the meaning from them. The mistake into which Christians have fallen by neglecting this rule are neither few nor small. And so we need to be careful when we interpret every parable of Jesus Christ. We need to be careful not to press every detail in it. Some have claimed that because of the connection of the unfruitful branches to the vine, this refers to those Christians who are unfruitful and they lose their salvation. They claim that this refers to Christians who apostatize, apostatize or leave the faith. But as we read further, we learn more about these branches in verse 6. Jesus said, these branches are thrown away like a branch and they wither. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. This is a sign of judgment. It is a sign of final damnation. These branches are condemned to death because they don't produce food. God takes them, he gathers them, he puts them in the fire to be burned. And so this claims that dead branches, referred to Christians who left the faith, must confront the strong evidence within John that true disciples are preserved to the end. John 6, 37 to, uh, to 40. In this text, Jesus gives a promise that all those the Father has elected for salvation, they will come to him. And because it's his Father who has elected them, when they come, he will never cast them out. Why is this? It's because Jesus honors his Father's will. He follows his Father's command. And, 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 and what is his father's will? That he should lose none of those the father has given him, but raise them up on the last day. Mm. He says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus was given this responsibility by the father to make sure his disciples never lose their connections to the vine. John 10, 21, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. It is very clear from the context of this passage that Jesus mentioning branches that don't bear fruit, he's referring to Judas. And verse 3 helps us. Jesus we, is, is with the 11 disciples and Judas is left to betray him. Jesus pronounces the leaven clean because of the word he has spoken to them, verse 3. And Jesus has spoken this way before. 
In John 13, 10 to 11, when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples, Peter said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Verse 10, Jesus replies to Peter, he said, The one who bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you is clean. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus pronounces the disciples clean because Judas is not there in verse 3. But in this text, because Judas was there, he says, you are clean, but not every one of you is clean. Not all of you are clean. And so we see that the one who is clean refers to the 11 disciples who are left with Christ. And they are clean because they have believed in his teaching. And the one who is unclean refers to Judas Iscariot. He is the unfruitful branch. He is the one who has not believed in Jesus' teachings. Brothers, I hope you see the warning here. What Jesus is saying through this parable is that unfruitful branches are those people whose lives are religious, but they have no spiritual vitality. They appear to be in Christ by their manner of life and walk, but their hearts are turned away from Christ. Their visible fruits are such that people see them and are impressed by them, but they have no eternal value. They have no eternal significance, no eternal reward. Judas Iscariot was so connected to Jesus' ministry that when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they looked at each other. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? No one knew that Judas could be the betrayer. No one suspected that Jesus could be the one, that Judas could be the one. And as you sit there in the pew, I simply want to ask, are you a Judas in this church? Is Jesus talking about you? I want you to do an introspection of your motive. Is your coming to church here a real thing, or are you making a show? Are you coming here so that people may see you and praise you, or are you coming here to seek the praise of the Lord? Is your praying, your reading of the Bible, your fellowship, is that all done to glorify God? Or it is done because you want to fit in, you want to be respected, you want to be seen as a moralist? Do you do all these things because you seek praise for yourself or you seek praise for God? I urge you to examine yourself and see if you're in the faith. To be deceived is to be like Judas and think that God doesn't see you. You see, like, like your friend Judas, you might deceive us, but God sees your heart. And on the day of judgment, all will come to light and you will be exposed as God's wrath is poured upon you. Repent. Repent while there is still time. Run to Jesus and receive forgiveness. You may do many astonishing things and achieve many more things. But if your life is not rooted in the vine, if your life is not changed by faith in the teachings of Jesus Christ, then your fruit will prove to have deceived you. The third point that we shall consider we, we, we come to true Christians. 
And in this we, we see the unity of Christ and the believer in verse 4 and 5. Christ says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And here we see that the connection of Christ and the believer is emphasized. We see that the unity of Christ and the believer is the most vital source of the believer's spiritual fitness. His zeal, his vigor, his piety, his fruitfulness are said to be fully dependent on his abiding in Christ. You want to grow in the knowledge of grace? In the, in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ? Abide in me, Jesus says. You want to grow mature as a Christian? Abide in me. You want to grow in love for brethren and service to your neighbor? Abide in me. You want to know the Bible? You want to understand the Bible? Abide in me. You want to grow in your confidence in Christ, even in times of trouble, in times of fear and anxiety? Abide in me. Now it is important to notice that the word abide basically means to remain. The word abide talks about someone who's already in Jesus Christ. Christians, like the branches, remain in the vine through faith in Jesus Christ. This faith is what establishes this beautiful unity. The sinner who has lost all hope in his words now puts his full trust in the work and person of Jesus Christ. By this faith, Christ's righteousness is imputed to the sinner that his sin is forgiven. Christ has taken his sin upon himself and paid his penalty at the cross. This is what is called justification by faith. Believers realize that Christ is the source and sustainer of their lives. To remain in Christ is to know Christ. It is to know him by obedience to his word, by constant communion with him and his people to know him through prayer. Perhaps the reason there is so little fruit in your life is because you are not abiding in Christ. Are you abiding in Christ? Are you remaining in Him? Heed His call to come and abide in Him so that you may be fruitful. At the second point, we see that God will often increase the holiness of Christians by His providential dealings with them. Verse 2, And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. The popular teaching of the prosperity gospel has convinced people that a Christian is not supposed to suffer. They say things like, God wants you to have wealth, health, and success. And if you find yourself suffering, they say it's because you lack faith. But this metaphor makes it clear that Christians sometimes will face suffering. And, 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 and why? why? Why do Christians suffer? Well, first they might suffer because they live in a sinful and fallen world. Sin has brought decay into a perfect world. The world is full of crime, full of disease and death. And this caused the believer to suffer. 
Second, we see that Christians suffer because of the consequences of their sin. If you are dishonest at work and you get fired for it, you shouldn't be surprised. If you are slothful and lazy and don't study, you can't be surprised when you fail the exam. You only have yourself to blame. You see, these are the consequences of sin, and sometimes these consequences are so serious that we live with them for the rest of our lives. But what is mentioned here in our text is what is considered here as the loving discipline of God. Christians suffer because of the loving discipline of God. In our text, we learn that God prunes fruitful branches. Now, the, the process of pruning usually involves a sharp object. The farmer will cut off those shoots and smaller branches that sap the nutrients from the main branch. You see, the, the more shoots come out of a branch, the lesser the branch's ability to produce more fruits. And so the farmer will usually use his knife to cut out those shoots and, and, and smaller branches. And this is done with the sole purpose of increasing the branch's ability to, more, to make more fruit. And here we see God's involvement in our sanctification. You see, God doesn't just leave us to ourselves. He doesn't just save us and leave us to ourselves. God doesn't save us and take a back seat and look at us running the show. No, God is involved. He saves us and continues to make us like Christ. Sometimes God uses his knife to cut out those sinful inclinations that remain in us. The truth is, sin remains in us. And the more sin remains in us, the less fruitful we become. The believer has those notions, those predispositions, those tempers, those desires that hinder him from bearing more fruit. They hinder his character, they hinder his spiritual vigor, they, and therefore God uses his knife to trim and prune the believer that he might be more fruitful. Though this process might be painful, it is not without love. God does this work because he loves us. In Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 11, he says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regret lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
God, he dis- God disciplines the ones he loves. When he disciplines you, he is treating you as sons and daughters. At the moment, his discipline might be painful. It might inconvenience you. It, it might cause you to go through affliction. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It was Charles Spurgeon who said, The word is often the knife with which the great husbandman prunes the vine. And brothers and sisters, if we were more willing to feel the edge of the word and to let it cut away something that may be very dear to us, we should not need much pruning by affliction. It is because that first knife does not always produce the desired results that another sharp tool is used by which we are effectually pruned. What Charles Spurgeon is saying here is God primarily uses his weight to make us more fruitful. He uses his weight to conform us to Christ. But if his weight does not work, sometimes God uses his knife of affliction to prune us. What Jesus is saying here is that when we get to heaven, we will thank God for all that he has put us through. Because our holiness in this world prepares us to enjoy heaven better. The holier we are, the sweeter heaven will be. And if there is anything in this sermon that you should take home is this point. Fruits of the Spirit are the only satisfactory evidence of a man being a Christian. Uh, the language of fruit is so rich in Jesus' vocabulary. And, and there is a reason for this. Look at uh, verse 8. He says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus is connecting bearing much fruit to being Christ's disciples. Matthew 7, verse 15, Christ said, You will know them by their fruits. Jesus, in that passage, warns his disciples about false prophets. And, and the only thing that will distinguish them from true prophets is the kind of fruits they produce. A tree is identified by the type of fruit, of fruit it produces. In a similar way, the Christian is recognized by the fruit he produces. It is clear from the Bible that fruitfulness is the whole purpose of creation and salvation. God created the world. He created the universe so that it might be fruitful and multiply. We see in Genesis 1, and God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Verse 22 says, So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swam, according to their kinds, and every wind bared according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the bears multiply on the earth. And when God created man in verse 27, he said, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, 
and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. This is God's purpose for creation, to be fruitful and to multiply. Not only that, but the purpose of salvation is for Christians to bear fruits. Jesus said in the same discourse, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruits, and that your fruits should abide. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, after Paul has given an explanation that our works don't save us, that we are saved by grace through faith, which is the gift of God, he goes on to give purpose to our salvation. And he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Simply put, we were created and saved for good works. We were saved to bear fruits, and without fruits, we cannot be confident that we are true Christians. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How do we glorify God? Verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And therefore, brothers, it is unmistakable that you cannot be called a Christian and have no fruits to show for it. In some, it might be difficult to appreciate the fruits, and in some, they will be plain to see. Some are more sanctified than others. But this we must conclude, that every Christian must produce fruits. We are all aware that Christians are not perfect. They often fail because they have sin dwelling within them. They have the flesh waging war against the spirit. This is what we have just learned two weeks ago when Pastor Andre was preaching in Galatians 5.17 For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. If you skip to verse 22 of that passage, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see, the Bible, you see, brothers and sisters, the Bible provides no room, provides room for failure in a Christian's life, but the room it doesn't provide is for a fruitless Christian, a carnal Christian. There is no provision in the Bible for such a person. What is the most important evidence that you are a true Christian? Fruitfulness. Are you producing fruits? D.A. Carson said, fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true Christianity. Fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true Christianity. Yes, I, I hear you that every Christian must produce fruit. You, you cannot confidently call yourself a Christian unless there are fruits in your life. 
I hear you well, but my question is how do I know whether I have those fruits or not? And I'm glad you asked. In answering that question, you may ask yourself, has there been any change in your life? Yes, I know that a Christian must produce fruits, but how do I know that I am producing fruits? How do I know that I am a true Christian? Has there been any change in my life? Yes, I'm, I'm reading the Bible. Yes, I'm praying. But has there been any impact in the way I carry myself? Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, but has my heart changed? These are the questions you need to ask yourself. Do I now seek the things of the Lord? The very things I used to hate, do I now pursue them? Can I honestly say I'm pursuing holiness? Even though the fruit is not clear yet, but can I genuinely say I'm pursuing Christ? Is my heart delighted to learn about God when I open the Bible? Or do I do it religiously? The things I used to love, do I now hate? Do those sins and desires and thoughts that I used to embrace bring me shame? Can I honestly say before God that I loathe my sin, that I hate my sin? Can I say that I'm willing to submit to Christ not only as my Savior, but as my Lord too? Am I willing to submit to the authority of his weight over my life? Am I willing to be unpopular with my friends in order to obey Christ? Am I willing to go out of my comfort zone so that I may serve Christ? These are the questions you need to ask yourself. We move now to the promises that Christ makes in this passage. And we see that Christ makes a promise to those who abide in him, to those who are fruitful. And the first promise that he makes is that their prayers will be answered. The second promise that he makes is that if they, obey, if they abide in him and bear fruits as a result, they will have assurance of salvation. He says, if they abide in him, they will have joy in Christ's love. The first, answered prayer, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Jesus here promises answered prayer, but notice the two conditions that he talks about. The first condition is that our prayers will only be answered but we need to abide in him. Our prayers will only be answered if we abide in him. As we said before, abiding in him is to be saved. This promise of answered prayer is only for Christians. This doesn't mean that God doesn't answer the prayers of the unbeliever. He may answer them because of his sovereignty, because of his will, but he doesn't have to answer them. The second condition that we see in this statement, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever we wish and it will be done for you. 
The second condition is that His words abide in us. As we read the Bible and understand it, it stays in our hearts and informs our will. If His word abides in us, it means we will pray according to His word, which is His will. So our prayers are aligned with God's will. This is the privilege that Christians have. Because they pray according to the will of God, their prayers are guaranteed to be answered. Our prayers often go unanswered because we pray selfishly. James 4.3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your patience. Psalm 37.4, the psalmist says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your flesh. Do you see the condition? You must delight yourself in God. You must delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, as you delight yourself in the Lord and familiarize yourself with his will through his word, you will pray prayers that are according to his will and God will answer them. Second, if you abide in me, you will have assurance of salvation. Verse 8, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The struggle with assurance of salvation that most Christians go through is not because they don't understand the doctrine of the security of the believer. It's because they see so much sin in their lives and so little fruit and they are discouraged. And so Christ invites the Christian to assess if he has any fruits in him and if he finds any, that will prove that he abides in him and therefore has security of salvation. If you know yourself to abide in Christ through faith in his word and have seen fruit as a result, you may be assured your salvation is secure and no one will separate you from the love of Christ. What is the third promise? Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Christ promises fullness of joy to those who abide in him. The, the Christian's joy is not dependent on circumstances. Christians are able to have their full joy even in the midst of storms. Paul says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You see, when we abide in the true vine, we are promised fullness of joy. This is how the Christian life is supposed to be. But many, of course, in the church don't have this joy. They don't experience the joy of abiding in Christ Jesus. They are miserable, they are depressed, they are discontent. And this is often because of sin. This is often because of fruitlessness. The sin is one of the causes of our lack of joy. Like David, after he had sinned, he prayed, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. David jo David's joy has been taken away. Sin steals our joy. The devil likes miserable Christians because they don't bear fruits. Miserable Christians, depressed Christians are hindered by the feeling of their iniquity. But God calls us to repent. He calls us so that he may restore our joy 
as he restored David's joy. But the truth is, the love of God should encourage us to a joyful obedience in Jesus Christ. Our obedience is no longer motivated by fear of hell, but it's motivated by the love of God because He has chosen us, He has loved us, that we obey Him. We are able to obey with joy, without fear, because we know that God doesn't approve us by how we perform. But God has already approved us through the perfect work of His Son, Jesus Christ. So even if we fail, God will still love us. And it's because of this love that we have fullness of joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word, thankful for how Christ calls us into his wisdom and teaches us the foundations of Christianity. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be moved, that Lord would start to question whether we are in the faith or not, that we would examine ourselves diligently, closely, whether we are in the faith. Oh Lord, we pray that, Father, in this church there will be none that are deceived, that, Father, you would help them find out whether they are lost or not. And if they are lost, Father, we pray that you help them run to you, help them seek salvation from you. Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that this word edifies us. We pray, Father, that we will meditate on it day and night. We pray, Lord, that this text brings you glory, that this text brings you praise. In Jesus' name, Amen.